Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are beginning uh, the story of Yaakov, right? We kind of are starting on the Yaakov narrative. And so we're leaving the story of Isaac. This is kind of the last, you know, the last couple of episodes where Isaac factors. Um, and in, we're in the second year of the triennial reading, and so that puts us uh, right before, the, a little chunk before, and then the um, story about the blessing of the firstborn that Jacob uh, steals, essentially, from Asaph by dressing up. So that, that story we've done a lot. We're familiar, most of us, with at least the basics of that story. I want to spend a little time on the text that we usually read right over, um, which is this last view of Isaac before that, quote, deathbed scene. I'm not sure it's his deathbed, but whatever. So, um, so I want to spend some time on what comes just before that, and that is chapter 26. Verse 12. We've just had the wife-sister episode with... uh, So he's already tricked Esav out of the... He's bargained with Esav to get the status of Bahor, of getting this... uh, extra inheritance and there's lots and lots that we've studied before about what exactly that is and what that means by because Asaph's hungry coming in from the field and remember the whole stew incident and he trades stew for uh, this extra benefit because they're twins and Asaph is the firstborn twin so he gets a lot more according to the rights of the ancient Near East the older son and then there's this episode where they go down to Egypt and he pretends Rivka is his sister so that they won't take her and kill him because she's so beautiful. She has to be exceedingly beautiful, right? She's a matriarch. She must be exceedingly beautiful. Why? She's a Jewish. a matriarch. She's a matriarch. Why is, it, why is it that a matriarch has to be beautiful? Very special. Very special. It's a sign of divine favor. So... Uh, in the ancient world, that was a sign of divine favor, that you were physically beautiful. Uh, and so she has to, that's the paradigm for her. She must be gorgeous. And in our case, all of the matriarchs are infertile for a period. Right? Everyone but Leah struggles, with, ironically, right? The less loved matriarch, ironically, you know, is fertile. Um, But all of them struggle with infertility because all of their fertility, all of their bringing forth of children must be somehow miraculous. Exactly. So these are hero tales, heroine tales. We know them from Greece. We know them from, right, Asia Minor. You know, we, we know these tales. We're familiar with them in other ways. We're not used to characterizing our stories necessarily that way. Um, so the, this is a wife-sister story. Who else did we see a wife-sister story with? Saying she's my sister so that they don't take her and kill me. Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah. So this is a motif, the wife-sister motif. Uh, we've seen it with Abraham. We've seen it. We, we get like three of them. Um, so past that, we're now uh, at this place where that that episode has just ended and we get this seemingly odd kind of out of nowhere scene that I want us to spend a little time with if we move on we'll move on to the other story Uh, so let's look at 2612 he's just left Isaac and Rivka uh, have left Avimelech who Pays them off, essentially. And so let's look at 12. Somebody read. Isaac sowed in that land and reaped a hundredfold the same year. 
The Lord blessed him, and the man grew richer and richer until he was very wealthy. He acquired flocks and herds and a large household so that the Philistines envied him. And the Philistines stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of his father Abraham, filling him with earth. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you have become far too big for us. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the wadi of Gerar, where he settled. Isaac dug anew the wells which had been dug in the days of his father Abraham, in which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham, Abraham's death, and he gave them the same names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants, digging in the wadi, found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. He named that well Essek, because they contended with him. And when they dug another well, they disputed over that one also. So he named it Sitna. He moved from there and dug yet another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he named it Rehavoth, saying, Now at last the Lord has granted us ample space to increase in the land. Okay. Thank you, Bert. So Yitzhak sows, and he reaps a hundredfold. So, how do we determine wealth in, in the ancient world? If you're a pastoralist, a semi-nomadic pastoralist, it's your flocks. If you are a settled agrarian type, what is your wealth? Land. If you can have land and not have wealth. The produce. So, produce that is over and above your needs. That is wealth in the ancient world, if you are an agrarian type. It is your surplus uh, produce, over and above what your clan, your tribe needs to live. So when we're told that Isaac sows the land, now we're thinking, okay, farmer. He's being a farmer, and he reaps a hundredfold, a hundred times what you would expect a yield of a crop to be. This is, this is huge. Isaac is now hugely wealthy. And how is he wealthy? Adonai blessed him. Yes? Adonai blessed him. That's why Isaac is wealthy. So we have this whole theme of blessing going on. So writ large, what is the blessing we're dealing with writ large? At the macro level. In general wealth, good weather. <laughs> Those would good be land. wonderful. Those would be wonderful. So let me restate it. What's the promise that we're dealing with? Yes, that you will be fruitful, as many as the sands on the shore and the stars in the sky, right? So that's the blessing that God has told Abraham will come through his line, yes? So he's going to be multiple, and what else is he told, is he promised? The land. The land. Thank you. All right. This is, the, this is the big blessing we're dealing with generationally. From Abraham to Yitzchak to Yaakov. Yes? This is the big one. All right. So we have the big one, but within the big one, we have some, some tension about who and how this is going to happen. So... Right before this episode, we have, we have this whole thing going on with who's going to inherit this blessing. And we get the scene where there's tension between Esau and Isaac. I'm sorry. Esau and Yaakov. Right? And so there's strife, there's contention, right? 
these wells, right? There's strife, there's contention, and who wins? Jacob. Now we get this whole business right here with the wells and all that's going on, and that is about blessing also. Who's involved in this one? Who's the blessing about in this one? Isaac. Isaac, good. And who blesses Isaac in this one? God. There's no contention. There's no strife about Isaac. There's strife about the resource, right? What's the resource here? Water. What is water in the ancient world? Life. Absolutely. Life. Fertility. Farming. Uh even the flocks. There is no life without water. Where is Gerar? Anybody have any idea where Gerar is? Down there near Beersheba. Tell me about that part of Israel. Very, very dry. Very dry. What is a wadi? Tell me about what a wadi is. It's like an arroyo. It's a dry riverbed. It's a dry riverbed. It's what? An arroyo. Arroyo. Yeah, it's a dry riverbed. Okay, excellent. It's a body. So, excellent. A dry riverbed. What? What is a dry riverbed? Why is? Why do? Why do you want a river? A dry riverbed. Because later on it'll be a wet riverbed. Later on it'll be a wet water bed. What? When is it wet? The rainy season. The rainy season. All right. So in the rainy season, there's flash flooding. They are torrential. You know, right? The, they, the water comes roaring through there. So the resource is, of course, water. It's life. Life-giving. As is, of course, right? The blessing. So what do we get on the other side of this, of this contention over resources? Where Isaac is the one given the blessing, we get another incident... About who's going to inherit the blessing. And once again, what are we going to have? We're going to have some tension between who? Esav and Jacob. Who wins that one? Jacob. Jacob. All right. So when you look at the ark, this isn't coming out of nowhere. It's sandwiched between... Two episodes of contention and strife around a limited resource. The limited resource is who's going to be the patriarch? Who's going to inherit this blessing of fruitfulness and land? So metaphorically, in the middle of those two scenes about struggle over this resource is a struggle over resources. Now, we could just say, okay, why did the editor choose to stick this here. Like, really? It seems like such a non-sequitur. Can't be. Right? Not possible. So we're going to look. So I want you to keep that framework in mind when we look at this a little bit deeper. I'm going to use early this time. Please, love and join us. In case you should think this is just me making up how important this topic might be, note the title of this book. <laughs> right? Our Father's Wells. Peter Pizzola is a world-renowned bibliodramatist. Peter Pizzola comes into your shul and he'll take one line of Torah and you spend the next two hours living that line of Torah. And he does it by having people inhabit the characters, right? So what he would do with us here is he would have, he'd need Esau, well, maybe, even if we just go with this middle incident, he'd need Isaac, right? So Rebecca would be hovering somewhere in the background. He'd need some people to be slaves because it says he has lots of slaves, right? He's very wealthy. Um, you need some folks to be... Uh, the people of Gerar, 
right? You need people to be digging the well. So everybody's up on their feet doing all of this so that we get a real sense of enactment because we just read right over it. But what's really happening here is a serious contention about life-giving resources. So the first question we might have about digging wells, he's now in Beersheba, he's where it's dry. He, the, the Philistines are jealous, we're told, of his wealth. And he comes in and he was wanting, he's needing to dig wells. He doesn't just want to dig wells. You have to find water. Water that you have rights to. User rights. It doesn't help you to know, you know, like, oh, there's some water over there. Right? It doesn't help if I can't water my flock or I can't water my crops or I can't boil water for dinner. So you have to have water rights as well as access to water. So even today, what do we know about, about you know, what's coming in the world in terms of resources? The world is not going to be fighting over oil in the next generation. What's it going to be fighting over? Absolutely. It is the critical component for life that we in our very saturated, materially wealthy Western lifestyle do not appreciate. This story is about life or death. Because the blessing, who's going to inherit the fruitfulness, the inheriting the land, doesn't do you any good if you can't live. So on the one hand, there's this overarching, amazing relationship to covenantal promise and blessing. On the other hand, we're Jews. There is a real connection here in Torah too, and it's not gonna, that's not going to do you any good if you can't sustain your tribe. We don't leave one for the other. you got to have both. Right. So let's look at what some of our commentators say about this. Let's go. I know it's kind of backwards. I wasn't sure how I wanted to, to do it with you. Um, one question might be, why bother with Abraham's wells at all? Right? Like, what? why even get it? They've been filled up. They've been filled in. Why even deal with them? Why even make it, you know, already an issue? And Rabbi Sheila Weinberg, who was one of my teachers at the Institute for Jewish Spirituality, if you look at this page where it says digging wells at the bottom, Allison Lachter quotes Sheila. So someone, someone read that. Rabbi Sheila Weinberg's answer is threefold. One, there's water. It's okay. Start it. Isaac is digging. Sorry. No worries. Isaac is digging the wells of Abraham, finding along the way contention, conflict, and then rehovot, spaciousness. In digging the wells, all of which lead to water, Isaac goes through a lot, eventually getting to a place of non-adversarial flowing waters. The question comes up, why not skip all of that contention and conflict and just dig new wells? Rabbi Sheila Weinberg's answer is threefold. One, there's water there. Two, we know where they are. And three, they are our wells. This is part of our spiritual path. We know there are deep insights within Jewish practice and study. We have structures at our disposal and maybe more importantly, it's ours. So right from the wells to boom, our lives sitting here, Jewish spirituality. Like, so this, this idea that, that it's a much deeper thing that's happening here than simply looking for water and where do they find it and, what, and some contention about it, right? That Torah seems to really be getting it, that we're leaving the Isaac narrative. This is the last real thing Isaac does, because in the next one, he's manipulated, right? The first one happens behind his back. The next one happens right in front of him, but he can't see it. This is the last time we see Isaac really active and, and, and in the role of patriarch. And our rabbis just refuse to, to see this as, oh, we got to have the wealth story in there somewhere, right? That it really is something about, why not skip all that contention? Why even deal with contention and conflict? Because we're certain there's water there. Anywhere else you spend time and energy digging, you can't be sure. 
So you want to start where you know there's water, where you know there's life, where you know there's a resource that's going to right contribute to your life. Number two, like we don't have to search for that. We know where that is. And number three, they're ours. They're Avraham's. Could this be a reconciliation? Ah, uh, between? Because, uh, Isaac coming to terms with Avraham? Avraham so, go ahead. Tried to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> and he obviously was not terribly happy about this. And he just went his own way. And here, at some later point, he's going back. I mean, there were people who would say, I'll dig any well, just not that guy's because he tried to kill me. Nice. And evidently, Isaac doesn't have a problem with that. Nice. He's able to accept it. So, are we ready to dig where it's really painful? Are we ready to dig and then figure out our own relationship to what's there? Very, very nice. Go to the wells. Go to the wells we dig. So go to that second paragraph. Although Isaac is the most passive of the patriarchs, our parsha notes that he does, in fact, go on to dig and name three of his own wells. He calls the first Essek, contention, the second Sitna, deep fear. Right? It's going to your point. Last but not least, he unearths the well that he calls Rechavot, expansion. And then, upon finishing this sacred work, he hears the voice of the Holy One issuing forth words of comfort. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Isaac's journey echoes our own. Our challenge is to move away from strife and fear towards openness. We do this largely by digging deeply within ourselves, by mustering the faith and courage to confront that which divides and frightens us. Only when we acknowledge the dark, narrow, hostile impulses that well up inside of us can we pass through them to a place of freedom and expansiveness. So this idea that he doesn't dodge the conflict. He stays present to all of that kind of, you know, dark, you know, fear, contention, you know, he stays present to it and does the digging that he needs to do to stay, the actions he needs to do to move towards expansiveness. And this, I can't believe I forgot to put the name of this person on here, um, but we all, we'll find it, Bert, on the internet and put the name on here. Um, is that how we do that, though, how does he do that? This suggestion is that we have to dig deep in ourselves. That Isaac had to dig deep in himself, to, in himself to stay present to that and keep, like you said, persevering in the face of whatever was arising. That's, it's both our individual challenge outside of us, but, but we have the strength to do that from going within, digging within, and staying present to the hostile impulses that come up within us. But he didn't dig his own wells. He did not he dig went his and own went wells. went back to where his father was and in a way redug the wells of his father, which is kind of what we're doing when we study Torah. He's also a conservationist. He was a conservationist. He doesn't want to make new holes in the ground. All right. Laura, were you going to say something else? Yeah, just mm-hmm. bringing the, to a little bit more of the mundane, what this... Uh, passage reminds me of that perseverance in the face of the shepherds sort of arguing um, you know I, we always find things where we are so it makes me it reminds me of you know in a family setting when there's chaos and there's commotion and the kids are fighting and they're you know you hated this and that and to be able to be above it and say 
that's that's gonna happen. I need to like not get into the mire and muck of this particular little bickering that's going on. And I mean I think there's a metaphor for that in all kinds of aspects where there's bickering going on in our life, but that was the example that sort of immediately connected with me, sort of keeping your eye on what's important, letting the herdsman work it out, and just moving forward. <laughs> well, and he's, he's willing to let it go, which can be really scary in Beersheba with a lot of people depending on you to have found water twice that belongs to you. It belongs to your... Your, it's yours. And you redug it. You're the one with the knowledge. You knew where it was. You spent the resources to dig in there and did all the hard work. And then those garar people come in and because they're making such a stink about it, you have two choices. And Isaac decides it's not worth, right, going to war. I mean, because what are your options at this point? Or the amount of negotiating it might take, right? He decides to let it go and to move to another well that he knows about, that he's connected to, and to do the heart, right? And so for me, I think that's often the place I get stuck, right? Is, but I was right! <laughs> I'm right about this! David? Maybe he might not have let go if he didn't know the third well. Ah, ha, ha, So you... Given your mm-hmm. intensity of the way you describe the need for water, I mean, that would put everybody in danger deliberately. So, I mean, I wouldn't give him the pass quite that easily. I, okay. I'm still not sure why I gave it up if it was their well. Right. Why didn't he at least argue the point? What was wrong with Isaac? Maybe they both had a legitimate claim to the... I mean, the, that's where it seems like there may be a dispute over whose land right. is this or whose water well, is it. It didn't sound that way. They said it's our land, right? Well, they didn't acknowledge it was their land. He's, he says, so the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, and the Gerar folks are saying the water is ours. Uh-huh. So, is the Be'er Sheva... Go ahead. Is the Be'er Sheva and the Rehobot the same as they are today in Israel? have to be. <laughs> this is how they got their names. Okay, so the fight still continues. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me more about that. <clears throat> well, there's still the tension between we who assume it's ours and the others who go, well, no, you know, that might have been yours then, but now it's ours. And what happens with this contention over rights to the land? Do we just skip over this incident and go, okay, so they're in conflict about it, right? We tend to underestimate that this is serious business. Yes. This is what drives war yes. in the Middle East right now. Up to today. Mm-hmm. Up to today, right, is my right to control the land and its resources. Doesn't the, the word Palestine come from Philistine? Oh, uh, yeah, because it was so Israel's greatest enemy. Israel's greatest enemy was the Philistines. So when Rome wanted to make it clear that, right, that an independent Jewish people, nationhood, state thing was forever quashed, they'd won, they named it Philistina. Not only are we taking it away from you, but we're going to name it the land of your enemy. In doing family counseling with adult children, who have a finite resource, which is their mother, and they each say, well, this is my mother, (laughs) and their mother is slipping away from them. And so they have to decide how to live live with this limited promise and limited resource that their mother is sharing or not sharing and moving onward. And so similar to what you were saying about your young kids, it, it it's Never. a very psychoanalytic kind of a thing that you're talking about too. This yeah. tale is definitely, this whole Genesis business is so much about what we live all the time, that our parents' love and attention 
right, is critical to us in ways that is not rational, right? That is, you know, it's foundational. It's like water. It's like water. Mm-hmm. But it's also... And physical. so, it, it, hang on one sec. And then so, that certainly is a theme. Aesop and Yaakov contending for their father's love and attention, certainly a theme. And their mother's attention, certainly a theme, right? Rebecca gives it to Yaakov. Isaac gives it to Esau and the contention that that causes. Um, and it's generational. We see it carried through the generations, right? This is, some people say, why do we bless our children on Friday night? May God make you like Ephraim Vemenasheh, Joseph's children. They weren't patriarchs. Joseph's not even a patriarch. We say, may God make you to girls like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. Why do we say like, like Menasheh and Ephraim? Any guesses? Because they didn't fight. They were the first brothers in our narrative who did not have serious, serious contention over the, the resources of a parent's love, attention, regard, and the blessing and the inheritance of what it means to, you know, to be the one who's part of the covenant, right? So the first two are two generations from now. That's like, it's that intense. Genesis understands it to, to be that intense and that intensely built into our family systems, that it is at the core of our struggle for life. Um, absolutely. And, and, and their, their material resources. Some of the ugliest, ugliest sessions I've seen as a rabbi are when we're dealing with um, people inheriting the physical resources. Who's going to be the patriarch? Who's going to be the sheikh? Who's going to get the bigger portion? Or I feel cheated out of what was my fair amount. Um, and of course I have to believe underneath that is really the existential eternal struggle for attention and you know whatever. Um, but it gets like really... And it, it breaks families <laughs> apart sometimes forever. So you wanted to say something? No, and politically... I totally agree, but then politically, it's, a, it's like a repetition of what you know happened thousands of years ago. And nobody won then, and it doesn't look like they're going to win now. Well, there was a successful outcome, and what was that successful outcome? Isaac, Isaac dug his wells. Let it go. Moved on. Let it go until, right, he came to Rechavot, which in this story was uncontested. So he went, he found a place where he could settle and settle his people that was uncontested. Because for him, it seems, either he's irresponsible and chicken and, and puts them all at risk, possibly, right? That's what... This is still the conversation politically, isn't it? That would be naive and irresponsible because they'll kill us. Here it's they'll die because they won't have water. But right in our narrative, that like we we deserve this, it's ours, and they'll you know, we're at risk if we give it up. And so this you know, David's saying it might be irresponsible, or Isaac is saying it is more important that we not have war right now. The risk of war than that I have this particular well. All right, it belonged to Abraham, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to acknowledge that it belongs to my father and my family, but I'm, it's not worth what that's going to mean if I stay and insist on that. And those are two sides of the issue I really think still today. Is it's not fine, it may belong to us, but is it worth what that's going to mean for our children and our children's children if we go to all-out war over it? Some people say, no, it's not worth it. We'll, we'll, we'll seed it and find some place where we can settle where it's not in contention. So those are still the two, I think, yeah. real sides of this issue, Dave. Is this, um, just, uh, in, the, in the question, is this Western thought? Because the logic would be, hey, sit down with these guys. Let's negotiate. There's enough water. You'll get your share. We'll get our share. We don't need to fight. And then we, all of this is avoided. That doesn't take place. And what's going on right now is exactly what this is. I'm afraid of you. All right? This is, there's no negotiation here. Mm-hmm. Is that the scene that exists in all of this? 
Um, so I, why not? It's so obvious. Because I think sit down and do that. I think Isaac figures he doesn't need to negotiate over the contested resources. That he either he knows there's another well, he knows that he has a map of his father's wells, right? So he knows that he's got some kind of an idea that, that we're just gonna we're I'm not gonna negotiate until I'm my back's against the wall. So the, the demarcation of the land is much clearer there because he knew that there would be no contest over Red and Blue. He, he may or may not, but it turns out he, he digs a third well that belonged to Abraham and the Garar folks, either it's too far afield and they know they don't have much of a good, well, for whatever reason, it's uncontested. And so now he's got his resource. There's no contest, right? So it's behind the green line. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm reading an amazing book called My Promised Land. Yes. And, yeah. um, yes. It's interesting that the very first successful, almost miraculous agricultural event was in Rehoboth. The oranges, what we call Jaffa oranges, started from there, and it was almost miraculous. So Rehoboth lives on. It does. It does. And this continues to be a central theme, right? It's a central tension and a central theme. One of the biggest issues about the Golan Heights is not only the military strategic advantage that you have overlooking all those farms, right, and children on school buses, um, that's bad enough. Um, but, but one of the real issues of the Golan Heights is that's the source of the Jordan River. The headwaters of the Jordan River are in the Golan Heights. That's really the issue. Because whoever controls the Golan Heights controls the water flow to the Jordan. And what does the Jordan feed? The Kinneret. A quarter of Israel's water comes from the Kinneret which is really down, by the way. And what does the Kinneret feed? The Dead Sea. One of Israel's, one of the world's most precious resources, which is drying up, is the Dead Sea, which is drying up. So because there's not enough water flowing down the Jordan into the Kinneret, it's not being used for swimming pools and agriculture, right, to get down to the Dead Sea, and it's evaporating at a, at a hugely scary rate. Um, so it's still one of the central points of tension there. Um, I want to go to an interesting um, piece by Grant Rosen where it says digging deep. So, so go to that second paragraph to the sentence that starts, that starts witness. Yes? Four sentences down in the second paragraph. Yeah? Witness his redigging of his father's wells. The text makes a point of telling us that Isaac assigns them the same names his father had given them. But when the time comes for Isaac to establish his own wells, the text pointedly tells us that he names them himself. Peter Pizzola, in his book, I don't know why it's missing, Our Father's Wells, points to the mythic power of Isaac's acts. It is only after Isaac redigs his father's wells that he is finally able to create a legacy of his own. This enterprise of redigging his father's wells is the sum total of the work of Isaac's maturity. Like, we don't get told anything else about what Isaac does after the Akedah. Yet there's something important enough in it to earn him the place as the second patriarch. In his sonship, some myth is being constructed that hallows and sanctifies his labor. So some people contend we've lost the Isaac tradition. Those texts have been lost to us over the generations. The whole Isaac tradition is gone. And all we really have left is this. Okay, so that's even if that's true, we have to ask, says Peter Pizzola, how is this enough for Isaac to be the second patriarch? Really? This is what he does? He inherits from Abraham, and the only real activity that we see is when he's passive at the Akedah, and then the only real action we see from him is this, and then being tricked by his sons. So this is really the only time we see Isaac in control and doing something. Well, it's a big enough thing that it gets him 
the second patriarchate's position. So what Peter Pitzel is suggesting is that there is some mythic power to this sonship, being the son, redigging the father's wells, then naming them himself, you know, naming the new ones himself. That somehow it's this generational act of digging backwards into history, taking from it what what he needs to sustain life now. And only in that process, only in doing that and sifting that, is he able to create right his own resources that are life-giving. Does this make sense, what Pitsula's getting at? So wells and waters are, of course, richly symbolic images. In many spiritual traditions, the act of digging wells represents the active inner search for the divine. In this regard, they might be viewed as internal rather than the more customary external spiritual metaphors, right? That digging is not about digging out there, chas Digging is about always. It's about digging in here. So look at a quote from Art Green that Rabbi Brant Rosen brings. Let us, somebody else read it. Let us think. Let us think of the journey to God as a journey inward, where the goal is an ultimately deep level within the self, rather than the top of the mountain or a ride in the clouds. The Torah tells us that our earliest ancestors were diggers of wells. Let us try to reach for the understanding that flowed as water from the depths of Abraham's well, rather for the moment that for the moment rather for the moment than than the one that ex sorry? Yes. I can't I'm sorry, I can't make sense no of this. Let us try to reach for the understanding that flowed as water from the depths of Abraham's wells, rather, for the moment that the one that came down from down in stone from the top of Moses' mountain. So he's comparing, right? The understanding that flowed as water from the depths of Abraham's well, rather than the one that came down in stone from Sinai. So this vertical metaphor in stone comes down. That's one that's one way that we deal with what it means to have contact and, and living into our search for the divine. But in this one, it seems, right, to be about understanding that flowed from the depths of Abraham's will, from the bottom up. Okay, go on this journey. This journey inward would be one that peels off layer after layer of externals, striving ever for the inward truth rather than the one that consists of climbing rung after rung, reaching ever and ever higher. Spiritual growth in this metaphor is a matter of uncovering new depths rather than attaining new heights. Perhaps we could even try to think of Torah itself as having been given at the deepest level of inner encounter rather than from the top of the highest mountain, the mountain serving as a vertical metaphor for an inward event. Ah. Talk to me about that, right? Well, I was Jackie. thinking that Isaac just took such an admirably higher road during such a primitive time because he could have chosen to hate Abraham for what he did and he could have gone to war, you know, with the people who wanted the well. So he just chose acceptance and just didn't go for war and hatred, which is what so many non-thinking or realized conscious people do. And so how does he find the ability to do that, according to Rabbi Art Green? He digs deep within himself. Mm -hmm. That kind of spiritual evolution, to be evolved, to be higher, right, in that case is an inward process of peeling back the layers of fear, of constriction, of pain, of... Right of all of that of being right of you know arrogance. Um, it's about peeling all that away to get at the the water that is ready to flow, right um, underneath all of that. So is it Isaac's way of forgiving Abraham? Is that what's really being said here? I think a huge. He knows the metaphor of the wells is that he needed before he passed. I think, yeah, this is what Bert was, I think, lifting up earlier. Why, why redig Avraham's wells? It's because he yeah. had to be willing to go there yeah. to the most painful 
point of his existence, which is existential. I mean, as an adoptee, I have you know, like I understand some of that kind of that painful, those painful first five days in a hospital alone. Right? It is very hard to go to that place and really dig into what that means. Whatever that is for each one of us. Like the, the scariest, darkest, most threatening place. And he's got to be willing to dig Dafka there. And in that process, I believe, yes, I believe Torah is absolutely saying something, or at least our tradition has looked to the story to be talking about. Um, part of that process has to be forgiving. Or we can't move deeper. And we can't flourish. We have to be able to figure out how to forgive. And it doesn't mean it happens once. Right? We have to, we dig over and over and over in the same place. (laughs) Um, But later he's able, having done that, to come into his own and name those places himself. To define for himself. Only afterwards. And of course we would say this is a cyclical process. You know what I mean? I dig, I get to the bottom of that one, new insight, right? And now I can name my own new well, and yay, I'm flourishing, and then guess what happens? Mm-hmm. I'm smack up against it again, right? You know, like the fear, the arrogance, the panic, you know, the need to be right, the need to control. Here it is again, and I gotta be willing once again to dig and dig and dig before I can once again flourish. You know, and so it's just this constant process, but I don't... Th- but I think it's a spiral process, right? I don't believe we stay. We just keep going through the same things. I think we keep moving through those same places and doing those same processes, but we spiral, you know, we evolve and we spiral upward. It doesn't take me as long to identify that i got to start digging. <laughs> and I know where to dig a lot quicker than I used to, right? You know, and... I have a feeling I know exactly what this is going to be like. It's going to be awful, right? As one of my professors that I just studied with at, at Northwestern, amazing program I was at for five days, um, as he said, you know, look, it's not that I know more than you. It's not that I have all the answers. It's not that I'm smarter than you. I've just been through the windshield more times. <laughs> right? Right? And we are, you know, we, we earn something having gone through the windshield enough times you know you know to put on your seatbelt you right you know to take that turn a little slower so you don't go through the windshield as many times but you know what's coming you know when you see the glass coming you know you you know what's gonna happen but we get them and you also as you're spiraling onward and upward you're having a sense that you've been here before you've done it, and you can do it so that the next time you don't start from the ground moving up, you're starting at some midpoint. Very, very have, important point. Because you have hope. Ah. And so where did that hope and optimism come from? The success of ah, doing ha, ha. The success of having dug and surviving it and coming out empowered... That is why we must allow our children to fail. Right? The blessings of a skin knee. Right? This is why we must let them fail. This is why we must take risks and fail. Because it's only in coming back from failure that we build the capacity for resiliency. And how do we build that? It's self-feeding. That once I survive going through the windshield, I'm not as terrified. I mean, I'm going to strap on my seatbelt, right? And I, so I know things to do that it's not going to be as likely. Um, but it's, but I have the confidence that I've, I've done this. And I can do this. I've done it before. Um, I was, I graduated Northwestern 27 years ago. And I've not been back there since. Mm-hmm. I was a starving student who was there on scholarship, who had to work three jobs, plus work-study, I came home frostbitten more than once from Skokie, Illinois, where I did a telemarketing job at night to pay the bills because I had to walk from the public bus stop back to the campus. And there was a real, and then I would see all these frat boys and their sorority, you know, counterparts. And my women's studies residential college where I chose to live was right in the middle of the sorority quad. 
And so, like, you know, the, the parties, the, you know, and so I was just in this constant kind of pain about I'm not one of them, I don't fit, I'm an imposter, they belong here, I don't, right, terror about am I going to make the bills next semester, will I be allowed to register, because whatever, so not to overplay, so the, the pain kind of, the, of that experience, like I haven't touched it in 27 years. I went on, I did my life, and I, right, and like here was this conference that I signed up for, and then I found out where it was. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I don't know. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. And you're going to be staying at the Orrington Hotel, the fancy hotel, right, where my father didn't have the money to stay when Parents' Weekend happened. So it was like, I don't know that I can do this. So, but this is about. Okay, right? I'm going to dig Dafka where it hurts, right? In that history, in that place that still somehow continues to define me until I put that shovel in the ground over and over and over, right? And then, you know, having been there, I reconnected with my best friend from, from then and another colleague who I've gotten to know since in the, in the spirituality program. And it's like, and like all those ghosts, that were so powerful, right, are somehow put to rest. Is it still there? It's always there. Like, it's just part of who I am. It's part of my history. Hopefully, it's part of my empathy. Um, and never wanting anyone to be left out and never wanting anyone to be turned away because there's, they don't have money or they don't have resources or they don't have whatever. Um, the point is that when we dig, and as scary and hard as it is, there's there, only in doing that are we liberated in certain ways to become really more fully who we can become. That continues to define us in a way and, and limit us because we're self-limiting, right? Until we can be willing to go there. And it's, um, it's a really profound part of our tradition's willingness to say the past is important, right? That we must engage even with the parts that are hard of our tradition, of our peoplehood, of humanity, of our own personal narratives. You know, that, 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 that's, it's got a lot of weight. And maybe this is a, a wisdom that older people have yes. that younger people who may be technologically smart and brilliant and so forth can't possibly have. That's right. And this is what's this is what's not being valued in our culture, which is really scary to me and others. Rabbi Harold Kushner, his new book was actually about this that the, it's been flipped. It used to be that young people looked to the elders who had all the wisdom about where the wells are, because it's only the elders who survived famine and know where the wells are. They're the ones who can save your life. So they used to be valued for their wisdom because that's their unique resource is their wisdom, a knowledge about the resources, how to get the resources, how to conserve the resources, right? And so now it's flipped because all the cultural you know, resources are in this new technology that the young are better at. So that the young are discounting the older generations who know nothing. That's air quotes <laughs> for those at home, right? That, that they know nothing. They're idiots. You know, you know, give it to me. I'll do it. My daughter says, can I tell you how many times? Just, just give it to me. I'll do it. You know, meaning I can't even stand to watch how you fumble. Well, it's just painful to watch how inadequate you are at this. And, and devalues, right, the things that I find to be, as I grow older, more and more precious and that I'm better and better at knowing something about, right? And so we're in these two really, and not, and young people have always discounted that until they get older. I get that. But now it's in a way that's really making elders um, marginalized and infantilized in a way that w what Kushner is saying is it's going to impact the growth of that younger generation. Right, that, that they are going to be somehow, and I use this word purposefully, retarded. Mm -hmm. You know that they that they won't they won't get from their elders because they won't ever be pushed to see them that way until maybe it's too late. But by then, they're adults who already have been defined by by a oh, what am I saying by almost like the 
Yes. There'll be adults that are already defined by that when they start asking us the questions that matter. In the, it's going to his concern. I mean, maybe I'm putting words in his mouth, but what I took from the book was part of the concern is it'll be too late. They will have already made the life choices, right, and the political choices and the whatever. That now, when they you know get it, that we actually knew something. It, it's almost like too late, and so um, I think this is a real thing that tradition and communities like this are critically important. That our children are here. That they see us come here, that we go home talking about what happens here, and I'm talking adult children too. Um, that we reinforce it for each other, right? That that this is where and it's not just here; it's in libraries, it's in you know philosophy, you know discussions. But this is one of them where the past, where tradition, where the wisdom, you know, that has survived three thousand years of trial and error. That we 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 turn our backs on that inheritance to our peril. Um, Bert, there's a, a a commentary at the bottom of the page, and this hurts. Yeah, which, you um, want to read it for us? Well, it says one commentator understands that the Philistines stopping by, stopping up the wells was symbolic, not physical. They tried to block dissemination of Abraham's ideas about God and human behavior the need for human beings to live righteously. So if you take that, now we come back to Isaac, if if what Yitzhak was trying to do was to keep alive the idea of living a righteous life, that that was important, in a way that also makes him a hero. He found, he went back to his father's wells, but you, you asked the question, why do we regard him as a patriarch? So from that standpoint, it would be because he was trying to preserve what we think is most valuable. Go to 150. Thank you, Bert, for that. I couldn't have set it up better. <laughs> Peter, Peter Pitzel's book, Our Father's Wells. Somebody read at the top of page 150. Without him? Without him, the wells of Abraham would remain stocked up. Without him, the stories of Abraham, the legacy of Abraham, would have passed into oblivion. Isaac is the man who preserves the past, carries it into the present, and passes it on to the future. He is the middleman, the inheritor, whose relation to the past is full of respect. So this... She's play, he's playing with the re, right? He re-digs because he's about return, recollection, recollection, repair, respect. That all those words depend on re, but doing it again isn't necessarily a bad thing because that's how we do repair. That's how we do recollection. That that's important work. Like Bert says, that he does it at Avraham's wells. Without that, they would have been stopped up forever. It wouldn't have passed. It would have stopped there. It would have been damned. <laughs> right? So, right, it would have been damned up. Damned up. Right. He, um, did you, would you say he reconstructed? Oh, he reconstructed. Right? The wells. The, the, what, the, what was there? But Isaac does not merely retain the past as a memory. It lives again in him. He reanimates his father's work with his own energy. This is the work of reconstruction. Right? Why not just start something new? Why not just go to New Age 
meditation and chanting or what why because we're re, we're not just and we're not just going back to tradition out as it was we reanimate it with our own energy Abraham's servants dug Abraham's wells but Isaac redigs those wells with his own hands his servants will go on to dig the wells that he will name in his time but he alone unstops the springs that his father found and more he gives them the names that his father had given them Isaac keeps the song line alive Um, so the the tradition wants to read back into Rechovot, which is about breadth. Chas v'chalila. We should say it's either or. Right? This is the beauty of tradition that so many people do not understand, which is why I love it that you're here. Right? Because this story could look like, oh, it means physical expansion. But... Our whole tradition is about what do we do with these stories? Why do we keep telling them? Why are we sitting here? Because, of course, it's not just about physical expansiveness, right? That that the tradition is all, these are myths. These are ways to talk about what, what is ineffable in some ways. So that's why we give them the clothing of stories. So we have a way in. But the, but the in is about the, the deep truths Right, uh, that our people has understood for 3,000 years, one of which is that it is through contention, through sitna, that we come to rechovot. So it's, it's always both and. It's the story, then there's some cultural, historical realities around that story. It's always ultimately about what is the tradition taking that forward to mean. Maybe uh, Jonathan Sarna just wrote a piece uh, commenting on Jack Wertheimer's and Stephen Cohen's article about the Pew uh, Report. And, Is this America's recession? America's spiritual recession? Yeah. yeah. The, 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 the fact that it's much broader. That it's not just Jews intermarrying. It's not the decline of Judaism. It's religion. It's America's religious religion, recession is the article. Religious recession. And I was sort of thinking about Kushner on this. Is, is the, the rise of technology and the kids is going to hit a wall of understanding and there isn't going to be a religious vehicle to help this generation get through that. They, they, they're not going to understand what this means. Nobody's there to teach it because they're not there. That, so that's the fear. Certainly that's the fear. That's or not fear. That, that's the concern right. to which we bring a lot of fear. <laughs> so so I believe, because I wouldn't be sitting in this chair, spending my life doing this if I didn't, I believe that I have to somehow figure out how to move through the fear, because if I let that define me, forget it. We throw up our hands and say, we're done. It's over. Because they're not here. So what's the point? We're at the dam. The wells have been stopped up. I I can't stay there. I got to dig. And I got to find hope, and I have to find faith, and I have to find energy, so that when they're ready, they come back, or they know to come to me, they know to come here, and or we both both have to happen, right? That 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 when I'm when they're ready, we have what to give them, the water to give them. The other thing, though, is I'm deploying Rabbi Renner. <laughs> To the tavern. <laughs> I've sent Rabbi Renner to do beer and big questions. Right? To give them a little taste of water. Where they are. You know, this is now, there's a book by a guy named Paul Taylor called This America. And he's an author, but he also works for the Pew organization. And it's in a sense, it's almost frightening about literally going on in terms of what how teachers look at this generation of youth going through and where they're going to wind up, the inability to communicate, the ability to understand that everything is wound up in your cell phone. Your life is, see, I guess, suppose if Isaac had an you know, phone, he would have put an app on it, he would have found the water and all of this would have been. So, so the Leadership Institute that I was just part of this week um, said 
So you better make sure you're taking the conversation to their smartphone. How many of you in here are doing that, they asked us, rabbis and executive directors, and, and we all went. <laughs> How many of you have a website that is designed and ready to interact fully functionally with a smartphone? 20% maybe of us, and there were 75 of us in the room. None of us are getting it urgently enough that we'd better be taking the conversation to their smartphone because that's where they live. So am I posting on Facebook every day? You know, on KI's Facebook? Am I tweeting? I should be tweeting, they tell me, three times a day. Once in the morning, once midday, and Shachrit, Mincha, and Barim. Thank you, Rita. Thank you. There it is. Shachris, Mincha, Myriv, I should be posting because what it says is I have something to say. You're podcasting. I'm podcasting, thanks to Bert. Um, and so, but that, but that this is the approach we're going to have to take if we're serious about engaging them is we're going to have to take the conversation to them so that three times a day they get a tweet from the rabbi, right? And it may just be that I'm reposting an article that I read. You know that that might be interesting, or this video, like you saw me post this empathy video. If you're on my face, if you're my friend on Facebook, right? How did I know to do that? Because I'm sitting at the institute, and as they're doing this to us, I'm like posting. <laughs> I like the video, but like, who cares? I usually go, who cares? I'm like, okay, from now on, they said we just repost because what you're going to do is you're going to give it a two sentence introduction, right? From you, so that what they're doing is they're watching and listening and reading through your experience and your eyes and that's a relationship who knew but like but we're gonna have to get educated right on how on how to do that um and that that's gonna take a lot of time and energy and resources All right, let's close with rabbi yael levy's poem at the bottom of your page the wells we dig at the middle of that page i'm sorry blanche or sarah isn't here our, our poets. Lisa, read. Yes, ma'am. Yitzhak stands at, a, at places of transition, guarding the passage, showing the way. He says to himself and to us, dig deeply. Don't be misled by struggle and contention. Don't be stopped by fear. This is never all there is. Keep searching Keep looking, keep returning. There is a way into the expanse, and the journey is continuous. We rise, we fall, we rise again. We gain perspective and lose it. We are besieged by doubt and fear, and we are released into the expanse of possibility. And the journey is continuous. Reach deeply, Yitzhak calls, and open to the presence of the mystery. For in every moment, the Holy One calls. Do not be afraid. Wherever you are, with you, I am. That is so beautiful. May our journeys this week and beyond move us from fear to faith, from narrowness to expansive freedom, and possibility. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.